You're listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. Our Public Policy and Regulation Group is a strong bipartisan team with deep ties throughout Washington, D.C. We have built a thriving government affairs practice through our depth of experience and diversity and by maintaining our bipartisan approach. The first 100 days of the Biden administration podcast series will take a look at the current political landscape and what listeners should anticipate to see from all facets of law facing this new administration. Well, good afternoon. My name is Michael Werner. I am a partner at Holland at Night. I'm based in our Washington, D.C. office. I am a uh, specialist in government relations and regulatory work. And I represent companies that manufacture, distribute, develop, and uh, dispense products that are regulated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. I also co-chair our firm's National Healthcare and Life Sciences Practice Group. I'm joined by my colleague today, Ethan Jorgensen Earp, and I'll let him introduce himself. Thanks, Michael. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm I'm Ethan Jorgensen Earp. I'm a Senior Public Affairs Advisor in the Washington, D.C. Office of Holland and Knight. I do a lot of government affairs work with healthcare entities, uh, including those regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, I also represent uh, a number of those entities on Capitol Hill and before federal agencies and look forward to the discussion today with you, Michael. So, Ethan, I think what we wanted to talk about um, during this podcast really was focusing on the vaccine rollout and related issues relevant to response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I guess the big news around vaccines these days is the pause in the administration of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I'm curious what you think about how that impacts President Biden's goal of trying to get uh, all Americans vaccinated by this summer? Well, it's a great question. And I think uh, certainly the news coming in about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine having some uh, side effects related to clotting uh, were certainly concerning. It was one of those situations where I think the U.S. was looking at other countries that were utilizing the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, which generated some side effects as well that caused some consternation. In this case, I think when you first read it, you think that it's going to have a very significant impact on the vaccine rollout. However, when you really take a look at it, 95% of the shots that are given domestically are Moderna or or Pfizer vaccines. So there's really a small sliver of the vaccine grouping that that are Johnson and Johnson vaccines. So I think it's it's interesting that Anthony Fauci, who is uh, helping to provide the scientific basis for the vaccine rollout, said this is a good thing that they're halting. Um, this is something that should create confidence, not concern. So we'll certainly see how that that goes. But I think that the initial uh, rollout of the vaccine will not be as terribly affected, I think, as people think it will be. I did want to ask you what you thought about uh, CDC's advisory committee was supposed to meet yesterday and come to a conclusion about whether they should limit administering the shots based on age or sex, and then uh, they seem to deadlock and push the the decision off. I didn't know if you had any opinions about sort of that signal and what it sends to to the populace. Yeah, well, it's certainly not good news, um, not only for Johnson & Johnson, I, but I, I don't think it's good news for the 
Biden administration. And I know I saw Dr. Fauci's comments as well. I'm not quite sure that's the way uh, a lot of other people would think of this. You know, we already have a situation where around 20% of Americans have expressed some hesitance about getting the vaccine. And it's kind of hard to imagine that all the publicity around this won't either raise that number or make it harder for that, for the administration to get that number to go down. I think your analysis is correct, right? I, I don't think as a practical matter, it, it makes that much difference. Um, the perception isn't very good. And I, I think that certainly uh, there were a lot of folks hoping that the CDC could make its recommendations quickly. And if it meant limiting who should get the J&J vaccine, just implementing that limitation and then moving on, right? And then the vaccine is just available to everyone else. And the fact that they delayed it and said they didn't have enough information is certainly not good news. But again, I, I think given, given the, the fact that mostly it's Moderna and Pfizer, and by the way, both of those companies, as you know, have said that they've got the manufacturing capacity that they'll be able to you know, develop more vaccines. So I think in the end, Americans who want the vaccine are going to be able to get it. And so it'll be interesting, you know, kind of how this plays out. The other interesting thing, of course, is that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines may get full approval from the FDA in the near term. And so that I think uh, will set certainly is going to be a market differentiator for them over Johnson and Johnson or AstraZeneca if AstraZeneca ever gets its product to the market. No, absolutely. That's that's a great point. And I think not just for vaccines, but those that are producing other medical products that first came to market under emergency use authorization, uh, they're going to have to start thinking about what the next steps are as they try and move from the EUA to an actual full approval. Uh, I think one of the benefits of the vaccine is that they had so much data available that while it's a complicated product to make, I think the transition could be a little bit easier because the data package is there to really help sponsors of those of those vaccines. There's been a lot of reporting on the variants of the COVID virus. Uh, a couple of them, uh, one seen primarily in the UK and the other seen in South Africa, apparently are much more highly transmissible than the original field virus that, that was seen coming out of China. So, you know, I, I did want to uh, touch on that a little bit. It, it seems that the Pfizer vaccine in particular is, is still effective against those variants. But I think that this does cause some concern for a lot of people, just given how, how transmissible they are. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. I think what this really signals is that any hope or perception that, well, the COVID pandemic, we're going to get a vaccine and then it's just all going to go away and and just be kind of something we all um, think about in the history books or whatever, read about, you know, five years from now. I, I think that the fact that there are these variants that are coming around that, as you said, seem to be more easy to transmit and all of those things demonstrates that what we might be looking at is that COVID becomes almost like the flu and that there might be new variants every season, let's say. It might be that we need booster vaccines, or it might be that some of these vaccines work on the current variants, but then there'll be another variant down the road. 
it's really hard to predict all of that, obviously. And, you know, viruses mutate, right? That's just what happens in, in nature and in biology. And so really the lesson from the pandemic is once we, we get things a little more under control, how do we create a public health infrastructure so that we can manage when there are new variants of this virus or other viruses that come down the road? And that actually leads me to a question for you, which is, we know that Congress has started to do a little bit of thinking about this. Um, what can you tell us about what some of the ideas are that are being kicked around on Capitol Hill and where you think that's that's all going? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great question. Certainly, uh, the, the near-term stimulus package has provided millions of dollars, billions of dollars to combat COVID in the near term, and we can touch on that a little in a little bit. I think long-term, Certainly, there are going to be discussions on Capitol Hill about how to organize the federal government so that it is more efficient when it's dealing with pandemics. Back in the mid-2000s, I think a lot of people will recall that there really wasn't a pandemics office at HHS. There was nothing really uh, permanent there. And it took George W. Bush reading the book, The Great Influenza, when he was on holiday in Crawford, Texas, uh, it scared him so badly that he ended up going to his advisors who ended up writing legislation and chopping it around Capitol Hill. And it led to the development of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority at HHS, also known as BARDA. And that really started the government understanding and trying to deal with, with pandemics uh, and related issues. And I think at this point, people are now trying to figure out, is that the best mechanism? Currently, they oversee the Strategic National Stockpile, which is uh, located at various sites around the country, and it, and it is a store of what you would think of as the most critical medical supplies that you would need uh, during a pandemic or another emergency. I think people are going to ask, is the stockpile big enough? Is it organized properly? Can you send those supplies out across the country quickly enough uh, to deal with, this, with different emergencies? So. I think in addition to that, people on Capitol Hill will be trying to figure out, well, do we have enough permanent resources for the development of countermeasures? Are we looking at the current shortage of drugs and uh, especially those drugs that are um, not prescription drugs, but generic drugs that are used all the time in dealing with emergencies? So I think there are a number of conversations that are going to happen in the next six months that will give us a better sense of what we're going to do in the future. You deal a lot with um, the user fee negotiations at FDA on various types of medical products. How do you think those efforts might affect that process? Again, it's a very regular process that happens every five years, but this is certainly a, a very interesting time, especially with when you're dealing with the FDA and its leadership. Yeah, you know, as you said, uh, the user fee negotiations, and what's interesting is this year, the authorization for prescription drugs generic drugs uh, and devices are all uh, are all up. The legislation is up for reauthorization, which means there's negotiations between the FDA and the regulated industry um, in each of those in each of those areas. And those negotiations typically just focus on the user fee program, which means that the FDA and the industry kind of decide what the user fee amounts should be and how much industry should pay. And 
uh, kind of consequently what FDA should spend that money on. And industry has typically been very careful to say that that money needs to be spent on items within the review process. So FTEs in particular, review divisions perhaps, or performance goals uh, that industry needs to see from the FDA in terms of how quickly they review applications or how, how quickly meetings take place, all of those things. So that'll, I'm sure, be all part of all these negotiations. They always are. But what will be interesting is the question you raise, which is, we're having these conversations. And by the way, Congress, after the industry and, and FDA are done, Congress then gets its bite at the apple and, and reauthorizes the legislation. So all of this is happening kind of in this context of the pandemic, or perhaps on the tail end of it, if we're lucky. And so to me, that means that when the industry and the FDA are negotiating, they're probably going to be talking about things like, well, what processes did FDA implement during the pandemic that can be extended even if we're not in the period of a pandemic? So a great example of that is use of virtual inspections by FDA. So I would anticipate that issues like that will be will be part. So the pandemic influencing the user fee negotiations because some issues that came up during the pandemic, I think are now kind of fair game for discussion between the regulated industry and the agency. Another example might be, you sort of alluded to this, supply chain questions. And uh, of course, especially in the early days, there were a lot of discussions about, we don't have the manufacturing capacity in this country uh, or how can we get products from other countries to the United States or pharmaceutical ingredients, things like that. So to me, all of those issues are gonna be part of now the reauthorization process, whether it's part of the industry negotiations with FDA or once Congress kind of jumps in and um, starts taking a look at these, at these issues. And, you know, speaking of FDA, Ethan, we still don't have a full-time commissioner. And to quote Yogi Berra, uh, that, you know, great American politician, it's getting late early and it's kind of getting late for a permanent FDA commissioner to be named. What are you hearing about that? Yeah, it, it's certainly something uh, at top of mind. As a lot of people have seen, there have been a number of nominees for other HHS posts that have that have moved through, uh, including the Surgeon General and some others uh, in the Office of the Secretary, but the Commissioner of Food and Drugs remains vacant. And there have been some interesting shifts in the leadership uh, at FDA. One noteworthy issue is Amy Abernethy leaving. Um, she was the Principal Deputy Commissioner and had been there for a long time, and she had vacated her post. You also had Janet Woodcock, who uh, had led the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research for a couple of decades, took an acting role. And as people may recall, she was one of the principal advisors to Operation Warp Speed earlier. So she had had a, a fluctuating role at the agency when they were developing the vaccine. And it was assumed a couple of months ago that Janet Woodcock would be the top choice for the, for the nomination that she would move through pretty quickly. And as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, there have been several uh, individuals in Congress, uh, in the Senate, Democrats, who have uh, expressed their concern over her nomination because of her activities during the opioid epidemic. 
And, you know, whether you consider those those thoughts and opinions fair, given her record, regardless, it's created quite a lot of difficulty for President Biden and his advisors as they're trying to figure out who should fill that post. You all probably also saw that uh, the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research filled Janet Woodcock's post with Patrizia Cavazzoni, who's, who's been there for a long time. And so now you have a situation where she will either be nominated and potentially become the commissioner of food and drugs, or she will vacate the agency. But it's certainly a very high profile position, especially when you're dealing with uh, rolling out a vaccine. And I think it's causing a lot of consternation. What do you think the ripple effects are as we get further and further down the line and we still don't have a commissioner because you know, obviously the, the review divisions and others can move forward with their daily work. But as you alluded to earlier, there are going to be a number of decisions that the agency is going to have to make, not only now, but in the user fee negotiations and moving forward, that, that takes a strong leadership role to make those. So I, I wanted to ask you what you thought about sort of the long-term effects of this delay. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of fascinating in, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, I've kind of been intrigued watching the the situation with Dr. Woodcock because ironically, uh, the things that that made her a strong candidate, and as you said, perhaps in many people's minds, kind of the presumptive candidate, um, either aren't helping or or haven't quite worked out the way anyone thought. So for example, one of the things that I think Dr. Woodcock always prided herself on and with, with good reason was her support in Congress, bipartisan support for forever. Uh, really a lot of respect on both sides of the aisle from staff, from the members themselves. And so here we have a situation where she might not get the role because folks in Congress are raising such red flags. And I think in January, we would have said, oh, well, the big advantage Dr. Woodcock has over other candidates is how much she's liked and admired by members of Congress. The other thing that's interesting is that she's, she's beloved by the cancer community for all of her work with um, supporting new drugs for patients with cancer and uh, the whole breakthrough designation was, was something that she was very, very supportive of. Um, and certainly President Biden has a personal, like many people, has personal um, experience with cancer and undoubtedly as vice president had lots of interactions with Dr. Woodcock in her role as the head of Center for Drugs. But you're right. And despite all of that, she seems to be kind of stuck um, over her role in the opioid crisis. Normally, um, FDA watchers would say it's not good for the agency to not have a permanent commissioner. As you pointed out, I mean, you really want to have a strong leader. The agency gets involved in so many difficult issues and they get pulled in so many different directions. And a strong leader really, really is important to kind of keep things moving ahead. Dr. Woodcock is a little bit of a, of a unique case as an acting because of what we're talking about, because she's been at the agency for so long 
and has the respect of the senior staff at the agency and does, despite evidence to the country, I guess, uh, has political um, support in a lot of circles. So look, I don't think it's a good thing. It's not as bad as others at times when there's been either no commissioner or an acting commissioner. And I think she is behaving as if she is the commissioner and not just filling a seat. But I think there's no question that that things would be a lot better and a lot more stable ultimately if, uh, well, certainly from the agency's perspective, if she became the commissioner, but even if not, if if there was um, a commissioner that was that was named. I don't know, and I'd be curious to what you think. I don't know if the Biden administration is just kind of letting this play out more. It's not easy to find a good candidate, but you'd think if they really wanted one, they would have found one by now. I agree with you. I think it's interesting. I think that there are probably a number of candidates out there Obviously, those with some political experience, there there are fewer of those, uh, and that that doesn't necessarily preclude you from being selected for the position. But I think it certainly helps if you have a track record of some sort of being able to deal not only with the scientific issues but also with the political issues. And I think it it also sort of brings uh, brings me to the next uh, item I wanted to talk about. Obviously, there was a stimulus bill, the American Rescue Plan, and it provided billions and billions of dollars uh, worth of funding to various agencies to predominantly deal with the COVID pandemic. Um, Certainly, the FDA was uh, a recipient of of some of those resources. I would assume that not having a leader at the agency would also make that uh, a difficult process if you're trying to take that money in and and transfer it and, and develop some some breakthrough therapies and some other um, um, some other medical products that can deal with the COVID pandemic and uh, the symptoms of COVID. So I, I did want to bring that up and, and get a sense of what you thought about that. Yeah, and yes. So that's a great example of where not having a permanent leader is potentially problematic. I think it'll also be problematic when, and not if, but when, there's a really controversial topic that the FDA has to manage. You know, uh, in in previous administrations, that could be, you know, issues around vaping or, um, you know, regulation of tobacco, or there's the NIH is talking about fetal tissue research. I mean, those kinds of issues that, that the politics gets really hot, hot, hot. I think that's when you really need the strong commissioner who can um, reassure everybody, all the political um, factions internally and externally that the agency's got a plan, it's solid, it's science-based, and it's going to be credible. Now, again, Dr. Woodcock has a lot of that credibility, so she might be able to pull it off. But I think that's really when we're going to see the test of this. Um, You're right, the appropriations and then something like that. And, you know, speaking of the appropriations and the rescue plan, you know, just getting back to to, uh, vaccines and contact tracing and the like, this is a huge uh, windfall of money for the Centers for Disease Control, 
which I think in some ways over the last decade hadn't had big increases when we look at appropriations, you know, certainly not like the NIH, for example, but they uh, have clearly been on the front lines. They clearly are going to be on the front lines. Congress has recognized that and giving them a lot of funds. So talk a little bit about how you think that money is going to be spent. And um, there are probably opportunities for folks in the private sector to collaborate with the agency. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and your, your point is a really good one. Uh, you know, everyone talks about the regular increase in discretionary appropriations for the NIH, but CDC and some other sub-agencies at HHS have seen minimal increases uh, in their funding over the years. The American Rescue Plan provided almost $50 billion to the CDC, which is an unfathomable amount of money. And it'll go towards, like you said, testing, contact tracing, COVID mitigation activities, certainly um, vaccine rollout activities. And so I think to a large extent, some of that funding is going to be distributed to the states uh, through pre-existing formulas that have been used uh, in, in other cooperative agreements. But I think that there are gonna be a number of activities where the CDC is gonna require assistance from outside companies. So whether you're trying to help with the vaccine rollout by identifying populations that haven't been vaccinated, or if you are uh, a company that, that develops sort of the, the equipment around the vaccine ex- itself. So whether you're developing new syringes, anything like that, there are gonna be opportunities there for sure through the CDC. I agree with you. I think that they've been viewed as the ideal agency to, to do something like the vaccine rollout and to deal with the COVID pandemic. They're not located in DC, they're in Atlanta, Georgia. So they're, they're viewed as outside of sort of the political inside the beltway. Uh, sphere. And they also specialize in epidemiology. So from a scientific perspective, they they were logical in trying to do some of the population analysis that you would need if you were to roll out um, this many vaccines. And I should mention, you know, for those that are developing technologies that can either deal with COVID now or for uh, future pandemics, certainly the Department of Defense is going to have a huge part to play in this. Um, $10 billion was provided to uh, through the Defense Production Act to ramp up the the production of various health countermeasures, equipment, and the like. And so that's something to definitely keep an eye on as we move forward that HHS has been in the driver's seat for the most part, but I think that the the ability of the DOD on on medical research and also moving uh, equipment and personnel has really put them uh, in a position to, to assist using the Defense Production Act. Well, Ethan, we're we're getting the the high sign from uh, the the producers here that it's time for us to um, wrap up. So we'll um, thank folks for listening and remind you that Holland and Knight's Public Policy Group is this is a series of podcasts that we're holding on all the various issues confronting the Biden administration. So if you have any questions, you can feel free to reach out to us and hope you have a good rest of your day. Yeah, thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. 
For more information on our public policy and regulation group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.